wonder wonder What is up, everybody? My name is James DeFiore, and this is Blackballed. We have a really interesting show today because I haven't had, except for um, Mike Bullard a couple times, who will also be joining us today, uh, comedians on the show. I had Mark Breslin once when I was just starting out. He's the founder of Yuck Yucks, and I wanted to have him back on again just to talk about the way the industry is now during the pandemic and if there's light at the end of the tunnel and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, I talked to him for about five minutes, and... Um, you know, the topic of all the unfortunate, untimely deaths that have occurred in the last few months with Norm MacDonald and Louis Anderson and Bob Saget. And I thought it would be a good idea to, to have him and a couple other people on the show to talk about these gentlemen because, um, well, they were basically, they were good friends of his. Um, Mark, founder of Yuck Yucks, how are you, buddy? How you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny you talk about a death. I had a death. Uh, in my inner circle last week, my mm. best friend from high school uh, died, and uh, oh. we were friends for 55 years. And wow. how many people can you say that about? So it was a real sad. It's been a sad week for me. That's, That's a big one too, because they watch you grow, right? Yeah. So they know all the versions of you. Yeah, and uh, it was a it was a friend I spoke to every week. And I saw every couple of weeks. So it wasn't just somebody I knew. It was a, definitely a good, good friend. And I feel very, very badly about it. Oh, well, I'm really sorry about that. I'm sorry to hear that. It, that. That's been a rough year for you personally, just with the people that you have known that are no longer here. Which well, newsflash. Newsflash. Mm -hmm. We're getting old. And this is going to happen more often than not. And well, listen, what I would like to suggest to that you do, Mark, if you could, sorry, to, I don't mean to cut you off, but speak for yourself. Okay, please. Like, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, we're not, well, we're not. Yeah, my my world is like getting old. Yeah. Um, Norm MacDonald, uh, he started out with Yuck Yucks, correct? Yes, in, the, in our Ottawa club. Um, that's a good segue, actually, to bring in Howard, because I want to just bring everyone in, because to be perfectly honest, guys, I, I wanted to just sort of um, let the show sort of run, because I'm not a comedian or from the comedian world, but I'm a big consumer of uh, of comedy. So that's why I was sort of interested in doing this show. So we do have um, Howard from Yuck Yucks in Ottawa. Howard, I don't even know your last name yet. And then we have Mike Bullard as well, coming to you live from his nap. Hi, Mike. <laughs> Wag Wagman. Wagman. <laughs> Wagman. Okay, thank Wagman. you. Howard Wagman. It's Howard That's Wagman. Thank you. So you Thanks said Wag. Wag. I thought you were crying. Uh, Wagman. Yeah, that, that's his w -A -G -A -N. name. Yeah. Um, Howard, tell me about um if you were were you there when uh when he started out there in Ottawa, Norm? Yes, I was. It was nineteen eighty six. We've been open for two years. We had uh amateur or what I prefer to call new talent shows every Thursday. And there were some diamonds right from the get-go. And uh, obviously, Norm was one of them. Not too often do you see somebody who's that quick. But, from the um, consumer standpoint, like the audience standpoint, I always thought that he was the exact same kind of off, off the stage as he was on. Like, he always had that sort of shit-eating grin and... There was never a time it felt like when he wasn't 
on. Am I just a, a bad audience guy who doesn't understand the difference between the front and the back of the stage? Not necessarily, but um, he, he was a little different off stage. However, like many of the greats, he didn't let a lot of people, when I say in, I'd say even not, not know him. There were only a handful of people who really got to know him. Um, there's a lot of examples of that business. You look at look people like Harlan Williams and Gilbert Freed, who they're never who they really are, no matter who you're with, they're with, because they're too private. Norm was one of those people. Um, but I got time with him, and uh, I'm blessed for that. And we did a lot of stuff together. We went to Springsteen together. We 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 hauled. Me, him, and Jeremy Hotz were together almost every day in those days. And Chris Finn, who was a writer on the uh, Mercer Report. And Mark, give, give us something that, you know, a, a good a good memory of him or just what he was like. Like, I mean, I think a lot of our audience um, are different from me in that I assume that I know someone's personality, but uh, I'm usually wrong. But most people have no idea. But uh, you, you got to sort of watch him grow as well. Yeah, okay. But you know what? Let's take a look at the relationship between what a person's persona is like on stage and off. And I'll even go outside the comedy world and say, um, well, let's take a look at, say, the music world. Do you think Bob Dylan finishes his concert, goes home and says, ooh, got to go to the toilet? I don't know. Um, the hunter gets captured by the game, as Smokey Robinson once says. And, ooh, the, mask like gets, and the mask gets put, gets put on so tightly um, that you can no longer tell the difference between the persona you've adopted and who you really are anymore. Um, in the case of a person like Norm MacDonald, um, he's sphinx-like um, and kind of unknowable in some way, and maybe even unknowable to himself. I'm not really sure. Um, I spent a full week with him in Aspen at the Aspen Comedy Festival in... 2002 or 2003 and it was it was the first time i'd spent real good time with him since he began and i didn't notice a big difference between who he was when he started and the guy who was successful and selling out the aspen uh big aspen theater in in 2003 or whatever it was yeah um, they say that about comedians as well though right mike do you ever like um you seem like you don't identify with like the the sad clown comedian, you know, the the, the joke teller who tells jokes to shield everyone from his darker side. You yeah, know, I never bought. You know what? I never bought into that with anybody. But uh, insofar as Norm's concerned, he was just—I don't know. I would say off stage, he was kind of insular. Uh, my brother was really close friends with him for years. They wrote together on Roseanne. And I only worked with him three or four times, but uh, on the occasions that I worked with him, it was always funny to me because you wouldn't hear from him for months at a time. But uh, when the phone rang, and, hey, Mike, how you doing? You knew you had a gig together because you needed a ride. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, that, and, that, and, and you didn't even get mad about it because you knew that's the way he was. He, he didn't live the way regular people live. He just didn't right. live that Did he drive? Did he have a lot no. driver's license? Yeah, can nope. you imagine living in Los Angeles and not having a driver's license? I know yeah. I lived in Los Angeles without a driver's license for you, about you a year. Did? Really? Yeah. What? Yeah. Well, how did you get around? Taxis. Wow, it's a yeah. big city. It must have cost you a lot of money. It cost the company I worked for a ton of money. Yes, yeah, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, I, I I get 
bugged by everybody from my wife to uh you know my fellow podcasters dean blundell and them who bust my balls constantly for not having a license but i mean <clears throat> i lived in toronto i survived in toronto for 20 years without it you don't i don't even think about it so part of the my whole matrix was to figure out how to get from point a to point b that was never my vehicle and it just you know it was easy yeah I don't, I don't drive in toronto but a large number of people drew up a petition asking me not to um, and because i always try to accede to the common wheel I, I reluctantly agree. Yeah. Yes, but well, Norm, well done. Norm You're a gentleman knew. among. <laughs> Sorry? Norm knew. Norm knew people wanted to spend time with him and he would have no trouble getting rides. Right, right. Okay. Never. His, company, his company is the payment, eh? Yeah. Know. A lot of times if you had a gig with him, you called him first and asked him if he needed one. You know, and uh, he always did. He always did. I can't remember his wife's name. She was a waitress, right, Howie? She was one of the waitresses. And her name was Connie... Yeah, and he used to have yeah. this great line about him, which refers back to what being sort of an, uh, a non-entity as far as personality. She used to say, Norm MacDonald deliberately misunderstanding again. That was her thing. <laughs> Whenever Norm would act like he didn't know something. Was that like his own setup? Is that, was, that, was that what that was? Well, no, this was in private. Oh. She would say this in private when Norm would try to have things his way when he just didn't want to do something or didn't want to say something or didn't want to go somewhere. He'd make everything work to his advantage. He and was also brother... kind of like, he was kind of Teflon, wasn't he too? Like, I mean, he's used to say some stuff that was really controversial and it would just kind of bounce off him. Like, it, I think when you don't care, it bounces off you. I think he I sort assure of you, that. he cared. Well, he didn't look it. Oh. I assure you, he cared. Everybody yep. cares. It's a it's a myth that people, you know, the guy doesn't care. Of course he cares. He's in show business. Um, it's the definition of caring. But yeah. you create a persona that doesn't care. We had a, I guess so. It's like yeah, when ahead, a comic gets, gets mad at you and they say, yeah, well, I'm going to go up there tonight and bomb. Yeah, right. Your ego is yeah, not no, going to let that happen. Anyway, sorry. I was thinking like a Ricky Gervais, like a Ricky Gervais clearly doesn't care. And I feel like that's what protects oh. him from being canceled. Um, I'm not sure that's true. I think that that's his, his marketing ploy, that he doesn't care. Maybe. What he, what he doesn't that, care about is he doesn't care about people who, doesn't, who don't like him. But he really cares about the people who do. And he wouldn't have a career if he didn't have an awful lot more people who liked him than didn't like him. Yeah, I agree with that. Go ahead, Mike. Well, it's a lot easier to flip people off to uh, a majority of people when you have like 200 million bucks in the bank. You know, I hear this stuff all the time about people. Oh, you know, they don't care. They they do what they do. They're so courageous. They're this they're that. Well, at some point they compromise to get 200 million bucks in the bank. And now that they have that they can do whatever they want, because when you're in this business, money gives you a lot of freedom. Money is Fair something enough. Norm never. Money is something Norm never had. By the way, I mean it went through his fingers like uh, nothing I've ever seen in my life. You know, he never hung on to a dime, did he, Howie? He was a gambler. Yeah. Oh, was he? Oh yeah. Yeah, he played a lot of blackjack. What they call a degenerate gambler, I believe. Yeah. And yeah. you know, he became a gambler because of yuck yucks. Oh, great! Why? Thanks a lot, Mark. How? <laughs> How did that happen? 
Well, yeah. we used to do these. We used to do these uh, these trips. A bunch of comics would get together, and we went to Vegas. Norm had never been on on one of these trips, and Norm had never been to Vegas. Norm had never gambled before. Um, Howie, you were there, so fill in the gaps on this story. But as I understand, when we got to Ve we all got to Vegas. Um, it was like noon, or we took an early flight. He didn't check into the hotel. He went right to the tables. And he didn't leave the tables and never checked into his room through the whole four-day trip. Is this true? That's mostly true. I don't remember every detail, but I know that we had a tradition. Larry Horowitz started the tradition. You know, yeah. James, do you know Larry? I don't know him personally, James? but yeah, go ahead. Okay, he was like he was Not the personally. pioneer. He was he was like the Louis Anderson of Twitter, really, because he did, you know, straight mm. stand-up, perfect on television, every word in the right place. Larry started Yuck Yucks with us in the mid-70s. Anyway, so Larry was always the ringleader of these Vegas trips. And we had a tradition. The first place we would go was Slots of Fun. You recall that <laughs> It was next, yeah. next Is that to a strip Stardust. Club? <laughs> it, was, it was a little, little dive where we would all have the one-pound hot dog. And we would plan our, our, our journey. And we would all sit there like a dozen of us at slots of fun diner and have this one pound hot dog and plan how we would do the trip. Norm disappears during that hot dog eating and we see him at the tables. <laughs> Nobody gambles at slots of fun. We just eat the hot dog. By the way, Howie, I have to interrupt here. It's not slots of fun. It's slots of fun. I'm oh. sorry. You're, you're right. You're right. Slots of fun. Yeah. yeah that's okay, right. Sorry. Go on. And we look, we go, where's Norm? And then somebody goes, he's playing. We don't play here, Norm. And he goes, I'm playing. And then we ate our hot dog and we left and we said, Norm, we're going to go decided what we want to do for the day. And he goes, I can't play, man. I lost all my money at Larry's hot place. <laughs> That's how the trip started. And then yeah. we go to like the better hotels. We go to like the, at the time, the Mirage was a big deal. It's not anymore. And we were playing and we, we sat down for drinks. <clears throat> Norm stayed at the tables and came back to the table where we were sitting and said, I just got two tens or two aces and I've got $500 down. I need another $500 or I can't split them. What do you think happened? What do you think happened? He was out. I think he walked away from the table for too long. So the dealer just took his money. No, no, they let him. They let him. <laughs> no. Okay. Nobody had 500 bucks to give him or didn't want to give it to him. So he pulls two tens and gets twenty-two. Wow. And so and so it began. But he had yeah, not gambled. Not... But he had not gambled until that trip. Am I right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. He lost and a I fortune. Also, and I also remember something else that when we had it was we went on a it was a charter flight, and yes. when we, it came to, when it came time to go, going back, Norm didn't want to go back. And I, Norm I didn't so. make the plane. I, I, yes. You know, again, it was so long ago, I can't remember the details. But he, he became an absolutely incontrovertible gambler on that one weekend. Yes. Changed it's weird what that could do. What, what that dopamine shot that some people get from that is, is weird. Because the high that you're seeking is already inside you. And you're trying to get it to secrete <laughs> onto your brain so that you feel like that rush. It's a weird one. I never really understood. I had a friend whose family won a quarter million dollars on a scratch ticket. And then all of them became uh, 
like lottery freaks and stuff. And we went to this, um, uh, we went to a uh, casino on a reserve near in Port Perry or something. And we went in and so I had $300. As soon as you walked in, there's that big wheel that has a hundred spaces. And one of those spaces has five gold stars. And he's like, give me all your money and put it on the, the gold stars. And I'm just like, I'm not doing that. I think you're crazy. What are you talking about? No more bets. And they spun it and it landed on the five stars. And he felt vindicated as a degenerate gambler <laughs> that that he should have just listened to me this time. Right. And I'm like, I guess I should have 20 grand or something. I would have won. But my brother told yeah. me when he was at when he was the anchor at SNL <clears throat> that he would come in for the weekend to do a show in Vegas. My brother would go and see him and they would pay him huge money to do, I don't know, four or five shows. He'd do the four or five shows and he'd go right to the tables. And by the time he left on Monday, he was in the hole 10 grand. His pay was gone. And he owed the casino ten grand. It was that bad. Did yeah, he ever yeah. stop? Like, was there like moments or years where he just didn't do it? Yes. Yeah. Yes, a number of years ago he stopped. Okay. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> he stopped. I don't know how. What like any other addiction. For him to yeah, stop, to stop, but he stop. He did stop. Good. Um, the Louis Anderson one is is. Is also it's sad and it, it is it is for me it's it's interesting because he was the first comedian I remember like looking forward to see when I was like a little kid when I was like ten. Um, I think it's because he looks childlike or something. He seems rather non-threatening. Um, can you can anyone lead off? Mark, can you lead off and let us know what it was like uh, to work with Louis and what he was like off stage? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, I. I worked, as you probably know, I produced the Joan Rivers show back in 87, 88. Um, and when I went down to Los Angeles, uh, Joan said, you can put anybody on the show you want, but you got to put on Louis Anderson because we took him away from uh, the Tonight Show. We promised him six spots. So um, give him a call, go have coffee with him, see what he wants to do on his first spot. So I did that. He was really nice to me. And he invited me to my first Hollywood party. At least that's what I thought. So the Friday night of the party comes along and I can tell this story now, but I couldn't have told it while he was still alive, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, it was 1986 and gay people were in the closet. There was no way that they were out, even if you sort of knew everybody sort of knew. And it was a, a an agreed upon fiction that they were straight. Nobody came out and said they were gay. Um, and I didn't know this about about Louis Anderson. I didn't so know I until right this second. Sorry? <laughs> I have no idea. I didn't know until right this second. Seriously? I Yeah, I had no idea. Never well, ever it, crossed my mind. I never read anything about it that oh. where he talks about it. I don't know. No, he never talked about it. But, oh. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, he did cross-dress in baskets. Is that Was that the last series, I think? Um, anyway, so I go over to his, uh, he said, come over at 9 o'clock. So I waited till 10. I went, I, you know, I didn't want to be the first one there. I go over there and I, I am the first one there. And I thought, huh, this is funny. In New York, um, nobody goes out until midnight, but I understand in Los Angeles, everybody goes out early, but there was nobody there. So we're talking and he's got bowls of, you know, cheesies and pretzels and all the different things as if it's a party. And I'm sitting there, we're talking and I'm telling him about Toronto and Canada. He's telling me a bit about his career. And one, it's just getting later and later and later. And uh, I said, Louis, it's, where is everybody? He said, well, to be honest, I just wanted you to come over 
because you seem like such a great guy. And then he puts his arm around me and goes in for the kiss. And I said, no, uh, Louis, really? No, uh, no. And then he, he looked shocked. He said, I honestly thought you were gay. I said, why? He said, well, you dress really well. Uh, you're into musical theater. Um, you have so many. I, you have I didn't. Cats. I didn't know you were not gay until just this second. No. Okay, ah. so you're learning things. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then this was really sad because this was a hallmark of the times. He begged me, begged me, begged me not to tell anybody. Mm. And of course, I never would have. And I never. It would never would have occurred to me to call the press. Uh, and and say that uh, you know he uh, tried to uh, sexually assault me. I was actually oh. reasonably flattered, which I told him. And because <laughs> this all happened like this, we retained a friendship through you know most of his life. Yeah, but to be fair, Mark did the same thing to me when I went in for the kill. Mm. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and you can't even blame alcohol, Bullard. Bullard, like that's yeah, no, no, I knew he, I I knew he was from another guy who. Uh, Show remain nameless. Who was a really good-looking guy? Yuck, yucks! Not that great a comic. And whenever Louis Anderson was around, he always had him open for him. And then after the show was when you realized Louis really wanted him to open for him. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it was basically the reason he took him around with him. I don't know if you guys that, remember that who was... it was, but I don't want to say. I do not remember. You will tell me after this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I don't want to say on here, James. The guy never gave in, but uh, I don't want to say who it was. Are you there? He's not there. Where is he? Gee, I'm sorry mm -hmm. if I offended you, James. I, mm -hmm. I, I didn't know you were so homophobic. Ah. Probably went to the fridge. Where is he? I don't know. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Well, let's talk about him. All right. Ah. Hey, by the way, I was in Niagara on the weekend, Mark. It went really well. Uh, Andreas is doing a great job there. Great. Was there a crowd? Yeah. Yeah. Because they're having problems. 
they're having problems filling it because people still aren't going to the casino. And as long as they're not going to the casino, they're not in town. And it's hard for Americans to get across the border. So that's really hurt the Niagara Falls Club. But, went to the know, casino, went to the casino after, and there were maybe 10 people in there. I went there to get a bite to eat. Yeah, that's horrid. That's yeah. horrid. And, I mean, you know. And it was freezing. I mean, it, 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 there's cold and there's Niagara Falls. It was unbelievable. Right. Well, it's wet. So, it's a wet, it's a yeah. wet cold, which yeah. makes it worse. Yeah. The mist turns into ice. It's unbelievable. Um, were you this weekend? I might be back there because uh, he said he wanted me back because there's two ladies coming who yeah, uh, yeah. are in Winnipeg. That's right. I was in Winnipeg earlier this weekend, uh, earlier this week, uh, looked at the room. It looks fantastic. Um, the women who own the hotel there, um, real go-getters. I think there's a good chance that we can make that work. Good. Where is it? Right downtown? Yes. I just won't tell you the name of the hotel and everything right now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. That's good. What about you, Howie? What's going on? We get to open in March. March 1? March the 2nd, we get to open. Uh, they, they cleared all the protesters out. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah, it's good. They did a they yeah. did a good job after that police chief resigned. The new yeah. guy did a great job, really great job. Yeah. Is he back? Howie, can't you ap apply? Isn't there a fund that's going to um, give some money yes. to businesses yes. that got hurt? Yes, we're supposed to get ten grand from the the feds, and then there's a class action suit which I'm considering joining. Okay. Right. I like I like the way I like the way Mark is so high up in the organization he doesn't know that you you know exactly who you apply to for ten thousand bucks. <laughs> well, it's only Ottawa. It's not yeah across yeah, the yeah. yeah so yeah. sorry about that guys <clears throat> yeah I had bad internet because I live in the middle of nowhere in a forest off the grid um, I don't know where you guys left off at but I really wanted to get to Bob Saget anyways because I. Um, God, that was I, don't the one... talk, I don't want to talk about death anymore. Oh, okay. Mm. I'll, I'll talk about it. So anyways, uh, what I wanted to do was talk about <laughs> Bob Saget. <laughs> Come on, Bullard. Like, this is why you're on the show. We're trying to pay tribute to these people. Um, you know, they're colleagues and comrades and friends and everything. And I just wanted to share some stories about him because, uh, you know, the recently passed. We don't have to talk about how they went. I'm not interested in the, the tabloid stuff. But who knew Bob the best out of the three of you? I'm guessing Mark. Probably. Um, Bob, Saget always said that his career started at Yuck Yucks because we were the first people, the Toronto club was the first club to ever book him outside of Philadelphia where he was from. Um, now, interestingly, um, you know, in those days, and we're going back to, ooh, what it would have been 1980 or so, maybe? Maybe 81? He played, he played Montreal Sorry? in 80. He played on Montreal, played Montreal in 80? Yeah. That means it must have been 79. Um, right. In 1979 then, there weren't that many comedy clubs around. So um, he had a manager, and the manager turns out to be somebody who was pretty famous. Um, uh, gives me a call and says, I have this act, and I want you to book him. And I said, how many times have I heard that? He said, well, look, we live in Philadelphia, and we will drive in and take the chance that you will like him enough to book him. And if you don't, don't worry about it. 
but I'm so confident that you're going to love this guy that we will drive all the way in from Philadelphia and stay overnight at a hotel and, and drive back. I said, okay, fine. Um, that guy, by the way, was Brad Gray. Brad Gray wow. eventually uh, became uh, uh, partners with Bernie Brillstein and Brillstein Ber- uh, Gray, the top comedy management company um, in the world. And he, uh, he then went and ran, I think, Paramount Pictures. Um, it might not have been, it might've been universal, but I think it was paramount. Anyway, um, they drive in, Bob goes on, does a set, kills it. I loved it. Um, he was like watching your favorite camp counselor because he worked with a guitar and you could just see him around a campfire, um, getting everybody in and everybody was his best friend. That was his hook, uh, with my new best friend, Ralph. Remember Howie? Yep. Mike? Yep. Yeah. So that was yeah. his thing at the time. That was his sort of hook. And uh, and yet he was pretty dirty. Um, and he didn't look dirty at all. He looked so clean cut, uh, nice Jewish boy. And so anyway, we started booking him. And um, he was he was great. He and he was he was kind to me all the way through. I remember for our 25th uh, anniversary special, um, he did a thing. He did a taping in L.A. for us, talking about yuck yucks and uh, how much he loved it. And when I was in L.A. Um, sometime after that, we spent the afternoon together at the pool at the W. We always had a good time together. He was a great guy. Everybody will tell you he was a great guy. Nobody has bad things to say about him that I that How did, I've can. Can I ask you? Because like uh, obviously, watching I, my first experience with Bob Saget was Full House, and then when you find out after Full House gets canceled mm-hmm. that he's actually a dirty comedian, that just totally blew my world. I had no idea. I don't think anyone did that wasn't in that world. So well, how did he feel about Full House? Me? No, I'm wondering. I'm wondering if you know how Bob felt about Full House. I'm just oh, curious because um, it was so unfunny in a way that would you made you laugh in a sense, right? Like, I'm not, I, I'm sure he saw the irony of it, uh, mm. but uh, it was a great paycheck. And part of what Full House was, and that character in Full House was Bob Saget. Bob was a really nice guy. Bob was mm. a good father. All those things were true. He was also this other thing. Now, it was interesting before. Everybody, the audience kind of got the message that Bob was actually a dirty comic when he was performing live. People would come out to the club to see him if he were advertised, and they were expecting to see Danny Tanner. And when they got there, what they saw so shocked them that we never had so many walkouts. And eventually, oh yeah, that... They were, they were, they wanted to wow. see the guy in funniest home videos. They wanted to see the sweet Bob Saget. And then they got this other guy. It was so funny to watch because, you know, when you'd book somebody like Sam Kinnison, and everybody knew what they were getting. But when you book Bob Saget for a while, they didn't know. And they left and they left angrily. I love that. And then, and then he finally, <laughs> you know, he got his audience coming out to see him and it was fine. But for the first couple of years that he was doing this, um, there was a real, you know, gap. And Dave Coulier mm-hmm. got to take advantage of that. Right? Did he ever? Uh, he, yeah, he, in he what was, way do you mean? Well, he, he, he gave those full house fans what they wanted, the clean all-American thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I cut it out. Yeah, that I, I just, I hated that show. <laughs> I just couldn't stand it. Yeah, it's like, I mean, it would, that I would watch. Yeah. Yeah, but that's another thing that he um, he 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 looks like the authentically nice guy in like his podcast. He used to say "I love you" to all of his guests before going off the air. 
Um, I heard he was like that on the telephone all the time too. Like he's just one of those universal give me a hug guys. It seems like, and I don't know. He seems like he'd be a good guy to know. Yeah, and he was. But you know, I live in Toronto. He lives in Los Angeles, so I'm I'm not going to be best friends with him in that kind of a way. But there was mm. always a really great there was always a really great relationship that we had. Buller, did you ever interview any of those guys except for Nora? I know you knew Norm, but did you ever work with or interview Louis or? No, no. Met Louis Anderson once, and uh, never met Bob Saget. Bob Saget was before my time at the clubs, but uh, I met Louis Anderson once. Really nice guy, and uh, sadly didn't even didn't even reach for me. I guess I wasn't his type. And uh, Bob, I never met, but I knew people who knew him, and I never heard a bad word about the guy. That he was that great. You know, that that's going to be totally different when you go, you know, like there's going to be a lot of people and we're all going to be like, yeah. fucking guy was so loud. <laughs> Not from these two, you won't. Really? <laughs> Listen, Howard, I don't know, Mark, if you guys have had this experience with Mike, but my wife walked in once and she's like, can you, who are you talking to? And I'm like, Bullard. She's like, can you just talk to him, but not on speakerphone? And I'm like, he's not on speakerphone. <laughs> that's, that's only that's with happened. you. <laughs> Howie, yeah. Howie and Mark have never had an issue with me, ever. No. Hello? It's amazing. you got to see Mike's show if you haven't. <laughs> yeah, Mike's great. Of course Mike's great. What show? What are you talking about? Yeah, but being different, uh, being different offstage never surprises me because if you weren't different offstage, you'd spend your whole life dodging punches in a lot of cases. Depending You're on the what same offstage? With one-on-one -on -one with you because I know you. But, I mean, I'm always nice to people. And... Uh, you know, and if you're going out with somebody, the last thing she wants is for you to be that person. If I heard it once, yeah. I heard it a hundred times. Uh, I'm not your audience. You know, even if you make a joke in the car and you're trying to make them laugh, I'm not your audience. I, I'm starting really to think that, what, that wives just don't give a fuck what their husbands do, ever. They could be like the greatest inventor of all time. She'll be like, can you clean up your crap? <laughs> you know well... I mean? I, yeah, but you know what? That's not a bad thing because it keeps you uh, humble if it no, doesn't go it makes too me far angry. the other way. No, huh? it makes me angry. <laughs> it makes me, well, it makes I, me I, un I don't feel unappreciated. I don't want to be humble. No. No, but it keeps you no. it keeps you from, from becoming a completely uh, self-entitled asshole. No, but it's, it's kind of funny. I always think that, you know, um, when Julian Lennon was – you know, 13 years old, and he's walking home from school with his friend, and he's saying, "My dad's such a dick," which you know is gonna is gonna happen. Your dad is John Lennon, but but he's a dick. He's just a dick. Um, and uh, Einstein, Einstein probably couldn't fill the dishwasher properly. And you know, to his yeah. wife, I don't care about E equals MC squared. <laughs> the glasses go here, and the you know, the plates go there. Yeah, I. But it's like. You know, I don't you think we should have to accept that. I want my wife to wrap her arms around me and go, holy shit, look what you did today, daddy, or something. You know, like... Yeah, but the only way you'll do that is by... Far too high. The only way you'll get that is by fixing something. You know, the thing I've heard a lot from my uh, women I've been with is, how come you're not handy? No, I'm, not <laughs> handy. I'm not handy either. Howard, are you no, handy? Like, how come you can't no, fix plumbing? No. How come, you know, no, how come I have I'm to call handy. somebody for this? How come I have to call somebody for that? Okay, so we have four guys on this panel who aren't handy, and they all work in sort of or around the edges of creative um, industries. That's why we're not handy. 
Let's see that fucking handyman tell a joke, right? Yeah. Well, like it's. <laughs> I think people are good with um, either some combination of things, people, or ideas. And I'm pretty good with ideas, and I'm pretty good with people, but I'm not good with things at all. And I have friends who are really good with things, but they're not really good with people. They're not people. Right. People, you know. So. Yeah. I think everybody's got something, and you've got your strength, and you go with your strength in life. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Totally. I'm. I wonder what my future wife, after my wife and I get divorced, if she'll be the same, or if I'll choose her for not being that way. I should ask oh. my wife that question. That's more of a question for the wife, I think. That told me two things. She's not home right now. She doesn't listen to your show. No, she's within earshot. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah, I don't want to become a sitcom husband, guys. That's my my biggest goal in life was never to become a sitcom husband in the sense that, like, you know. They get to be all grumpy and you have to be okay. Like I, I just, you know, I fear that. When I feel that is starting to become like an entrenched vibe, I have to shake things, shake it out a little bit. That's the yeah. way it goes. Yeah. All right. Hey, you since, guys are really <laughs> Go ahead. Since we started this about Norm, I will tell you one good Norm story that I know because I got it from my brother. Okay. Uh, uh, right after O.J. Simpson got found not guilty, my brother phoned me from L.A. And he said to me, this is a small town, you know. I'm going to bump into that guy one of these days, and I'm going to call him a murdering motherfucking son of a bitch. And in my head, I went, uh-huh. I said, oh, are you? He said, yeah. I said, okay, give me a call when that happens, if you can. Mm-hmm. So about six months later, he calls me, and he goes, uh, and this was after Norm had already been fired from Saturday Night Live for all his O.J. Simpson jokes during the trial. So he and my brother told me he and Norm went to Vegas for the weekend and uh, they were checking out on Sunday and they got on the uh, elevator at the 10th floor and there were three other people on the elevator and uh, the elevator door stopped on eight and the door opened and OJ Simpson was there. And my brother told me that Norm immediately got behind the third person in the elevator and bucked his head down. So OJ Simpson came in from the left and he's facing my brother, just facing him. And my brother says to me, hey, remember that time I told you I was going to call him a uh, murdering motherfucking son of a bitch? I said, yeah. He goes, well, I was going to, but then I took a really good look at him and it came out as, hey, OJ, big fan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and he said Norm hid on the elevator the whole time because my brother said, I'm convinced he's seen Norm. Yeah, you don't want to say that to a murderer because you know what he's capable of, right? Right. <laughs> you know. Do you remember the very first date after uh, he got OJ got off? But Norm. Yeah, it was fabulous. Was One line. New, new... What was uh, the line? How we do the it's line. A, it's, and official. Then I'll... it's official. It's official. It's official. Murder is now legal in California. Right. Wow. Now you know That's... that they say that brevity is the soul of wit. Well, that one line was the best thing I heard in all the thousands of lines I heard about yeah. the OJ um, decision. It was so wow. precise. And that's actually something that's true about Norm is how precise his comedy was. I wouldn't say that quite in the same way about Louis or Bob, but Norm, his precision was and his accuracy was really something. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of fat on his jokes. No, no, not and, at and all. And I don't know how every I know every com- comedian has their own process or no process. Shout out to Mike Bullard. 
But, um, you know, like, was he a writer or was he more of like, did he assemble it in his head? Does anyone know how he used to work? No, I don't like know. Well, what his process was. He was definitely yeah. a writer. I mean, uh, he and my brother were on Roseanne together. They wrote on Roseanne. And well, they wrote. Mike, I think what James is asking is did when Norm was creating a stand up act, did he sit down at a computer and actually write it out? Or did he sort of so wander around trim it, town trim it, trim and then it, a line yeah. would occur to him and then he'd remember? Well, yeah, it was, but I was getting to that. What I He didn't even use a computer on Roseanne, he used a pad and a pen. And he would make oh, notes and have them at the writer's table. But the few, a couple of times I worked with him, I saw him with the pad and the pen. Now, I don't know what he was doing with it, but uh, I just assumed he was in his room writing stuff. Yeah. But he it's was like, also uh, super funny off the pen. Yeah, he was. He was. And it would be so abstract that you wouldn't see it coming from 10 miles away, even though you were in the business. Exactly. James may not be old enough to remember this, but in 1986, he and I, we went to the Springsteen concert in Toronto and we were very high and he turns to me during the show and he says, don't you think that Clarence Clemens looks a lot like Esther Roll? <laughs> like who? Esther Roll. That was Florida from Good Times because they both wore that bandana, huge afro. That's so funny. Oh, <laughs> I fell yeah, on the floor. Funny. I fell on the floor. Yeah. Well, listen. Okay. Um, very obscure, right? How many yeah, people yeah, would even very think obscure. of that? Let alone get it. Let alone get the joke. Wasn't that hey, the I same year that Courtney Cox was discovered by Bruce Springsteen? Wasn't that the same no. exact same year? No, no, no. That the idea that he pulled her out of the crowd—it was all set up. Oh, yeah. what a good agent she had then. Jesus. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well done. All right, guys, listen, uh, I'm going to cut it there. Uh, I, I wanted to get a couple of guests to come in. I feel like uh, we're, we're kind of struggling to, to figure out the storylines here. Um, but listen, Mark, I really um, want to appreciate you coming on. I'm really sorry that you've had so much to deal with over the last few months, not just with these three gentlemen, but with, uh, with another friend in your life that has passed recently. So you have all my humble condolences, sir. And thank, thank you. you for coming. Thank you. No problem. Thank you. Uh, excuse me, Mark Breslin. Howard, thank you also for joining us uh, as well. You were, um, Mike Bullard suggesting that I come because you were the Yuck, you still are the Yucky Yucks Ottawa guy, and that's where Norm had started. So thank you very much as well. And Bullard, thank you for looking disinterested throughout the entire podcast. And and for coming on to a tribute podcast hey, about my, three defense, people that I... passed away, and your first contribution to the conversation was, do we have to talk about death? Yeah. And by the way, I can't see anybody. I'm on my phone. I can't see any of you. No. Oh. So that was yeah, an that. issue. Yeah, I don't know why sucks. I'm blaming you for that, but I am. I don't know why either. You know, you were in a pissy mood from the beginning there, Bullard. I don't know. Like, it's something. Yeah, I gave a okay? couple of good stories. I wasn't in a pissy mood at all. But what I am is in a library where the librarian has poked her head into what's supposedly a soundproof room twice and put her finger in front of her mouth like I'm being too loud. Next time you should flick her bun when she walks yeah. by. See what she does. All right. See All you right, later. Bullard. Thanks, everybody. Uh, that was fun. It wasn't uh, quite what I expected. You know what I learned about this show, though, as I was trying to assemble guests to come on and tell their stories? Comedians are like their very own tribe, and they live in their own ecosystem, and I think they would rather honestly do a lot of those, that kind of tribute thing to fallen colleagues and friends um, privately. 
I got that a lot. I talked to a few comedians. I won't say who they are because I don't want to. Whatever they didn't come on the show, but um, and 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 I know the other guests that I had today reached out to a few as well, and it was all pretty universal stuff. Um, they appreciated the invite, but um, they were friends with either Norm or Louis or Bob, and they just wanted to leave it alone. There were a few people that said because of what's happening with uh, Bob Saget's death right now and the autopsy and everything that they didn't want to get involved in that kind of situation. Even though that I didn't want to talk about that at all, but you, I can't blame them for thinking that maybe that was going to happen. So. Um, but I felt that we got to learn a little bit about um, about these three gentlemen, and especially Norm Macdonald, because, uh, you know, Canadian boy. And I appreciate that. Ryan Lindley is on on Thursday. He is uh, the Dean Blundell Network's Mr. Everything. Ah, fucking guy, like, I don't know who to compare him to because I don't believe in any gods or miracles, but th that man, like, I don't know. He he turns tricks uh, in in the tech side of of the Dean Blundell stuff with content and traction and stuff that I've just I don't know. It's fun to watch, um, and I, I I enjoy watching him help uh, the network grow. So we're gonna have him on Thursday. And stay tuned in about stay tuned. What does that even fucking mean? There's no rabbit ears on the internet. But in about an hour and fifteen minutes, I'll be on the Dean Blundell show. Okay, thanks everybody, and we'll see you on Thursday. Bye. the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.